0: This is Roy Thomas, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast.
1: Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 125 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. This is Rick verbanus I'm your host, and as always, I'm joined by the best gosh darn, co-host out there that's bob lucius oh bob do you mind if my friend sits this one out she's just dead (laughs) what the uh, it sounds familiar
2: it it sounds familiar
1: i would be like if one listener gets that quote i will be impressed yeah it was james bond uh huh, and it was from the it was from the movie. Now, I didn't do a James Bond accent. Maybe yeah. that's what I should have done, yeah. huh? You know? Yeah. But anyway, it was uh, it was from the movie Thunderball. Sean Excellent. Connery. Yeah. 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 Yeah? Yeah. It was a scene where... I should have uh, known that. I'm beating myself up now. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Where it was a scene where somebody gets shot while mm-hmm. he's dancing and puts her down. He says, do you mind if my friend sits this one out? She's just did mm-hmm. uh-huh. so you know why am i opening that with you today bob um, well because thunderball was a top movie for grossing in 1965 now 1965 also happens to be the year our guest today starts their comic career that'd be mr roy thomas now i also thought it was kind of fun that thunderball is a marvel character that was created in the defenders which was also a a group the team that roy thomas created so I, <laughs> I i i kind of thought that was fun
2: that is fun actually that's a lot of uh, a lot of connections there rick and I'm, I'm disappointed. I told you, I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know, I'm a, I was a huge James Bond fan as a mm-hmm. kid. I have, you know, probably dozens and dozens of paperbacks, you know, vintage paperbacks. And I also had a, I had a subscription to the James Bond fanzine, which was called Bondage.
1: Yeah, it was a very big disappointment when I got that first issue. I I imagine your your mom's like, Bobby, you got some mail. It
2: it actually came in a manila envelope. So Uh, uh high expectations.
1: I uh, I, I bet. (laughs) Uh, Well, welcome to the show, everybody. We're very excited today because we do have a, very special guest. We have Mr. Roy Thomas, uh, who is a legend in the comic community. And we were very pleased and honored that he is going to join our show and wrap some cap with us a little bit later.
2: This is exciting. I know you have been hunting wide and far for a long time to get Roy on the show. So kudos to you, Rick, for finally landing him. And this is really exciting to me because I I grew up reading the invaders and, uh, and, you know, of course that was his baby for a very long time and has continued to be uh, even up until just a couple of years ago with a book that he did with Jerry Ordway. So uh, this is really exciting for me. So thank you on behalf of myself and all our listeners.
1: Of course Uh, it, it, was a labor of love and i'm so excited that it came through um because we've been talking about roy thomas for quite some time right um we had steve engelhart a longtime legendary writer of captain america on the show back in uh episode 52 and he talked about his time working with his editor roy thomas who who basically oh had uh this thought about hey what what was the deal with the 40s and 50s Captain America, right? Steve Rogers supposedly was frozen, and uh, according to Avengers 4, and he asked, you know, Steve to 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 go ahead and, and come up with uh, something. And so Steve kind of talked about it in, in his, his episodes. I, I highly recommend people check that out, episode 52. Um, and then hopefully today we can get uh, Roy to give, you know, his side of the story, too.
2: Yeah, I know we've got a lot of questions for him, and we'll see if he gets to them all. So, uh, you've warned me that he is a bit of a talker, so that's a good thing. Oh but, yeah, he's
1: he's fun. He's yeah. fun. He 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 definitely uh, is not shy. Uh, you don't have to uh, pull things out of him. Uh, he's got a, a wealth of great information and stories. And man, uh, you know, very excited to to have him on the show. Um, and you know, he's also the king of of some retcons, right? Like, you know, and, and retroactive continuity as, as retcon stands for. And, um, you know, we, I highly recommend for our listeners, you know, you, if you want to learn about the non-obvious Captain America retcons, right? I mean, obviously Avengers four being the biggest one or, or Bucky, Uh, becoming Winter Soldier, right? These are big, obvious ones, but there's a lot of other ones out there too. And and some of them that Roy Thomas was involved with, and we did do a top 10 other Captain America retcons. Uh, We've actually broke it up into two uh, episodes. So check out episodes 84 and 89 uh, for those, because, um, uh, you know, Mr. Bob Lucius here put a lot of lot of research into those and uh, it's it's pretty ent- entertaining and interesting to to see the different twists out there
2: it is and as you said he, he was behind a lot of the really big ones so um it's gonna be great to pick his brain about those and his philosophy about retcons and um yeah where, where the thought process came up for a lot of them
1: yep uh so bob this week uh in the captain america comic book fans facebook group um just, uh, it's been so much fun watching, uh, all of these different posts that are coming in because, uh, people are, are showing off their, their new collections, you know, or just some, some new stuff that they've picked up, uh, at flea markets, uh, or at their their local comic shop. Uh, some people filling in some of their holes, getting real close to, to, to finishing some, some long runs. And then, uh, you shared uh, a couple of, uh, things, uh, as far as like, um, I think uh, you got a, a new Funko Pop in, didn't you?
2: Well, it's not a Funko. It was a, um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's the Marvel animated. You know, I think they're based on uh, Scotty's, uh, you know, uh, illustrations. Of, oh, Scotty uh, Young. Yeah, Scotty Young, and uh, and I got you know uh, Sam Wilson, Captain America, so. was you know, my, 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 mom, my, my wife ordered it for father's <laughs> day last year, you know? So it's been almost what, uh, nine months, you know, since, since she ordered it. Could and have had it, a baby
1: it, between now and then.
2: Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Thank goodness we didn't, but, uh, yeah, pre-ordered. So it finally arrived. So that was exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's always fun seeing that kind of stuff in the Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Um, and you
2: got some art, I think.
1: I did. I, I showed yeah. off uh, some, some original art that I got from the Batman Captain America one shot that came out in 1997 by John Byrne. I finally, finally joined the John Byrne Club. That's something I've been been trying to do for years now. And it's hard to do because, you know, John Byrne only did like nine issues uh, yeah. back in 1980 and 1981. Um, and of course, you know, he did a, a little bit of a run on on Avengers. So, you know, there's always those, but there's not a lot out there. So when, when these two pages came up, uh, I jumped on them. It's the epilogue to the Batman Captain America one shot. It was p- pages 63 and 64. And it's the epilogue that takes place 20 years after the story. And it's where the new Batman, Dick Grayson and Robin, bruce wayne jr are in a bat sub and they're in the arctic and they come across a frozen figure in the water and they pull it into their sub that sounds very familiar Mm, it sure does and it's steve rogers and he wakes up from the ice and he yells bucky and then they kind of you know let him know where what's going on it's just a cool two pages so yeah um you know, that I'd love the Facebook group. If you if, if lifters haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it's unlike any other Facebook group out there. What do I mean by that? We have strict rules, right? We have very strict rules about no politics, uh, no negativity. Let people enjoy what they like. Um, and so and we enforce that too. So it's an oasis away from the daily stress. And, you know, it's a trip down memory lane. I highly recommend, you know, people check it out
2: sure is. You'll learn stuff you didn't know. You'll learn about the comic book and related collectibles, and uh, you'll get a lot of support and a lot of help. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of paradise. And, and otherwise, at least for many people, including myself, some days can be pretty rough, and that is
1: just a little respite. Yeah, exactly. Um, one more thing, Bob, I just want to mention, uh, because we're getting low. We're getting low on our What Would Cap Do Challenge coin. So we made a hundred of these custom-made coins um that have on one side Captain America's shield. On the other side, it says what would Cap do it. Then there's a a ring on both sides with different uh, personality traits of Captain America. So it might say compassion, humility, empathy, honesty, integrity, and and a few others. Um Anyway, we we made these coins. You you can't buy them. We don't sell these coins, but we do give them to our patrons, people who help support the the show and support the Facebook group. Um, if anyone has any interest in doing that, if you love the show and you want to show your support, uh, just go to our website, CaptainAmericaComicBookFans.com, dot com, and you can see on there um, where you can get the what would cap to challenge coin and uh, a few other perks for, for being a patron as well. Um, And we are running out. Um, I, I, I am going to save a few for our guests because I like to give them to each and every one of our guests to come on the show, but we have a handful left uh, for people who want to sign up to be a patron. So check that out. You don't want to miss out on this because once they're gone, what they're gone. Oh, oh, you you yeah. left me in, in and lurch there. I was like, what? What Bob? Yeah. Uh, speaking of leaving in a lurch, we probably should get Roy Thomas out of the green room. He's probably been waiting long enough. Indeed.
0: Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's o-l-l-y.com.
1: Our, our guest today needs no introduction, but it's hard not to list some amazing highlights from his career. Roy Thomas has been a comic book writer and editor since the mid-1960s, working closely with Stan Lee following him as Marvel's editor-in-chief in 1972. He was pivotal in getting Marvel the rights to adapt Conan to comics, as well as the movie Star Wars. He has co-created such unforgettable comic characters as Wolverine, Vision, Carol Danvers, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Ultron, Yellow Jacket, Man-Thing, Red Sonia, Adam Warlock, Morbius, Ghost Rider, I could go on and on. He's also created uh, amazing teams like The Defenders, and Squadron Supreme. However, we plan to talk to him today about his time on the character Captain America, including the group he created, the Invaders. We are honored to have the 2011 Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame winner and 2022 Harvey Awards Hall of Fame winner, Mr. Roy Thomas. Roy, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Hey, if I have won all these Hall of Fame awards, you shouldn't have to introduce me at all. Everybody should know who I am. Exactly. <laughs> But, but I don't so, think they do. It's it's so
1: hard not to brag on you. I mean, you're you're yeah. you're. That's uh... okay.
0: I, I'll forgive you.
1: <laughs> and also, a special thank you to your manager John Semino for arranging this chat. We really do appreciate that.
0: I don't even know how to turn on these things without him. <laughs> so, yeah, he he's crucial.
1: So after being with Marvel only a year, uh, you took over writing the Avengers from Stan Lee uh, with issue thirty-five at the end of nineteen sixty-six. And at this time, Captain America had only been revived for like two and a half years. Uh, The only other place you could regularly read him was in Tales of Suspense, a a series he shared with Iron Man. Was it clear by this time, though, after only two and a half years, that Cap was a top character for Marvel? Or was he still building a new fan base?
0: Well, I think they're both true. He was because, you know, obviously a lot of uh, readers hadn't heard of him before Avengers number four or maybe that strange tales, you know, where the fake one was in a couple of months before. So, wow. But, but the thing is at the same time, it was, Captain America was such a strong character and had been from the very beginning that as soon as you brought him back, you knew he was a star. I mean, he, he was going to be right up there at the very least with characters like Iron Man, if not eclipsing, them. you know, he, he's just that good a character. I mean, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby had created, you know, one of the handful of great superheroes back in the forties and, uh, you know now in my case of course i knew a little more about it because i'd read the comics for the last few years in the 40s although mm-hmm. not during the world war ii and i'd seen them later and in the 50s there was a revival for about a year and i read all that stuff uh so i was a fan you know i was a fan go- by the time of 1966 i was already a fan for uh for you know for like 20 years of captain america so for
1: you this was uh i guess something you it- I don't want to say a dream come true, but
0: it's a character that you were a fan of that you were now writing. Yes, I, I was a bigger fan in the 40s and even in the 50s uh, and, and later of both Submariner and, and I actually like those two characters better. I like the human torch with his flames and so forth and the Submariner with that great triangular head and the, you know, uh, swimming and the, the pointed ears and the winged feet. But Captain America was a good, a great character. And I had been reading him since the, uh, the 40s. And uh, so you know, it, it was if it, as you say, it wasn't a dream come true, but it was certainly something that I was really very, very happy and eager to do was, was to uh, to write to to do Captain America, uh, just like I would have been to do you know maybe Superman or Batman or uh, probably more than Superman or Batman actually.
1: So let, let's talk a little bit about the '40s and '50s, and and, and talk about continuity in the Marvel Universe. Uh, the nuances and, and the, the relative importance of continuity is always good fodder uh, for debate among among members of our, our Captain America comic book fans Facebook group. And, you know, in retrospect, it seems pretty obvious, like some six or seven decades into the Marvel age, how attention to continuity has really helped build Marvel Universe that is coherent and, and rich with details. So when we go back and we read the Golden Age Captain America stories, you know, uh, there's little attention to continuity. Every story stands alone. And and that's basically, it wasn't an outlier, right? That was a tendency back then. They were just printing out periodicals. They weren't trying to build a universe uh, back in the 40s and 50s. So things started to change in the 60s and you played an early and important role shaping those changes. In a broader sense, what do you think precipitated the shift towards the importance of continuity in world building and, and how has that changed how comics are read and, and also written?
0: Well, comics, the, the continuity, the idea of continuity in comics had become already important by the time I get there. Uh, to some extent, it was already taking effect at, at DC's Comics. There was more continuity between, uh, you know, let's say the various stories of the Flash and Green Lantern and Justice League than there had been of the old Flash and old Green Lantern and Justice Society back in the 40s. But still you know it was like every every adventure was a whole new thing and so forth and there was a little continuity but you know it was kind of weak uh the characters were kind of growing but it didn't seem like they were changing much uh stan and jack changed that when they started stan jack and steve Ditko, and i think all of them had a part in that uh because of their natural inclinations i the person i think who sort of guided it was Stan because after all, he was writing almost everything. And if he wasn't, he was either writing it or at the very least he was editing it. So he was overseeing the writing and the art. And, you know, Jack was involved in a lot of different books but he wasn't paying attention to the books he didn't do. He wouldn't have probably even read a, an issue that was drawn by a Don Heck, you know, Or, uh, you know, or, you know, or I don't even, I I never heard him talk about Spider-Man. I don't know if he knew anything about Spider-Man once he was no longer associated with it. Uh, And Steve Ditko really only paid attention to the couple of books he did. But Stan paid attention to all of them. And because he was either writing or at least editing all of them, it was just very natural for him to to make continuity happen. And it was, it, it just happened. It just kind of, I don't, you know, some of it was conscious and some of it I think was probably unconscious that he just kind of stumbled into it. And suddenly discovered that th- there was feedback from the readers and they obviously liked this continuity thing. They they appreciated the fact that two or three issues later, there would be a footnote saying, remember when this happened two issues ago. They thought that was yeah. kind of funny because you didn't see that in comics much. It was, you know, they were saying these things really happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that uh, that makes the things so much more real to uh, to a reader. If, you, if you're, uh, especially if you're trying to hang on to readers and stand from the very beginning because he wrote a letter or two to that effect in the first year or so of uh, the Marvel thing uh, that he, he was consciously kind of, even if he didn't say, wouldn't admit it, maybe later, that he was really consciously aiming the comics at a slightly older readership than he felt say DC comics were having than the comics that had in the past. Uh, so it wasn't just that he discovered it and built on it. He actually was wanting to, from the very beginning, it worked out pretty well because what he was giving the readers was something that was a step up in terms of, you know, quality. I mean, it wasn't that something could be done for kids and still be very good. He was doing something, but for slightly older kids that maybe even people a little older and he suddenly discovered he was getting things from adults. Like me, I was a young adult just graduating from, you know, college or, and, and teaching. And my friend, Jerry Bales was a college professor. And there are a number of others. Some of them were aspiring artists and they were people who had read the comics in the forties and fifties. Some of them were new and some of them had been reading for 20 years and liked comics. And this would be very startling to people like Julius yeah. since Stan, you know, because the theory in the, old, in the old comics had been every five or so years, the whole audience turns over, right? You know, the right. kids start reading at the age of five or six, like I did or whatever. They read till they're 10, or maybe 12, they hit puberty, they're gone. They probably never came back in the, the old days. You know, you don't see a lot of people say. You know, th- th- otherwise it would have come back and started reading Archie, reading Archie comics. You know, 20 or 30 years later, but in the, what uh, Julie did to some extent, Stan did to a much greater effect. He grabbed those people, so they never left. And as a result, you had new people coming in all the time, the young readers. And if you lost sub at the end, but you didn't lose nearly as many as you would have before. So obviously, so therefore your base keeps growing. And this was really, I think. The source of the thing that drove DC crazy about the time that I came there and that I would hear about where they would have meetings John Romita said he sat in on one of them when he was still doing romance comics there in which they would be trying to discuss why Marvel was selling more and more comics you know Uh, and, and of course DC was distributing Marvel at that time through its you know arm independent news so they knew all the sales figures and they just saw that Marvel while still a smaller company and being controlled by them in a certain way, but their sales were just growing and growing while DCs were staying kind of flat, you know? And uh, they had came up with all these theories. And, uh, you know, John said that one of them, one of them I might've been canning or something, but one of the editors actually suggested it was the bad, it was the bad art, you know, guys like Kirby and Ditko, you know, these bad artists that the kids, they, it was such bad art because they, you know, some of these guys hadn't liked Jack very much when he was doing Challenges Unknown. It was too exciting and wild for them. And, you know, they were, just as happy guys like Wirt Weisinger were just as, as the editor of Superman, they were just as happy when Jack was gone, you know? And, uh, you know, they, they liked the more bland art. They made people like Gil Kane and Carmine Infantino do much more bland art than they would otherwise have done. And they said, you know, after all, a kid will look at this bad art over there at Marvel and they think even I can do that. And they, and that's why they like it. Well, that's such an insane <laughs> viewpoint that it's hard to think that was actually spoken aloud in a meeting. Wow. And then, and sometimes they said, oh, it's the covers. That, Cause they got all, they got all these weird purple colors and they don't have the primary colors. Stan would have all kinds of shades of purple or something and a lot, you know, and so forth, or it was this, or it was word balloons on the covers or, you know, or something uh, they have more word balloons on the covers. They do this they do that and, and i think a lot of it was just the fact that they just seemed more real which was a combination of the excitement that uh stan jack and steve and the other artists who you know who took their cues from them put into the books and they so therefore they'd come back they wanted to know what happened the next month i mean uh, you got a great book like avengers it's going real good with all the big guns from marvel in it all of a sudden they all go away and you got quicksilver scarlet witch and and quicksilver i mean and, and hawkeye and uh, they people wanted to see what the hell's going to happen stan told me the sales actually went up in avengers when they drunk dumped iron man thor and giant man he says he thinks it's because kids wanted to see what the heck was go- what was going to happen to these losers running around with captain america you know and actually for a while the book actually sold better and it stayed pretty steady you know and so forth uh, and i think that was true with with all the uh, the books you know uh, they, Jack got better and better. He got he's. When you look at the Fantastic Four number one, it's not that great. You know, I mean, it's you know the art's kind of crude for Jack Kirby compared to what he had been doing just a year earlier, say in Challengers. You come, you look back two or three years later, he's back to doing top level work. Mm-hmm. And once he gets teamed up with anchors like Coletta and Thor or uh, Joe Sinnott on Fantastic Four, you know, you you've just got something that moves it to a whole new level. You know. Yeah. Hmm.
2: So I, I'd like to take this, this concept of continuity uh, a step further. So a few things seem to get Captain America comic book fans more mm-hmm. riled up than retroactive continuity or, or retcons, especially when they involve the more, you know, let's just say, the sacrosanct elements of the Captain America mythos, like his origin story or, or the major milestones of his uh, of his life. Bucky should have <laughs> stayed dead. That's my theory.
0: Winter Soldier the <laughs> of holiday. Bucky should have. There used to be a saying at Marvel. Marvel Comics will be successful and thrive as long as Bucky stays dead. Well, they're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Ben, right? Go, go ahead.
2: For some retcons, need, needlessly muddy the the water by asking uh, answering questions that nobody's asked. Well, well, for others, retcons are just what are needed to to address these nagging gaps in continuity. So these debates they they periodically arise in our Facebook group, um, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, with retcons connected to the identity of the guy behind uh, Cap's cowl. Mm-hmm. So, in podcast number six, we covered the Captain America 153 to 156 story arc, the one that finally explained who was slinging the shield in those 16 Captain America stories in the 1950s. Yeah. And we talked to the writer of that arc, Steve Englehart, uh, back in podcast episode 52. Mm-hmm. And in podcast episode 124, we covered what if number four, um, which you wrote, and that issue revealed that Captain America, the Captain America we saw in uh, Captain America comics in the 1940s, and other uh, was in fact three different men. Uh, And
0: did Steve did Steve mention that I'm the one who assigned him and asked him to do the 1950s Captain America?
1: He did. Yeah, he did. I I figured he would. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Actually, I assigned him. I wanted him to do. To, to, here's the thing, I, uh, the uh, it bothered me as a reader of the longtime comics, even though I wasn't a slavish, uh, slave, an, an enslaved to continuity going back to the 40s, necessarily. Uh, even when I did Invaders, I didn't always follow the old continuity. I, you know, I wasn't really religious about that. But it had bothered me when Stan brought and Jack brought back Captain America and Avengers number four, that. You know, they had had him frozen in ice since 1945, because I knew he had lived for several more years till 49 in the comics. Mm-hmm. Then he had disappeared. Then he had come back to fight the commies in 53, 54 for about a year. And then he was gone again. So he was back. So it bothered me. And I, I and also we were even reprinting those stories. You remember, there was right, yeah. more of classics They, we were reprinting. And I was responsible. To, I wanted to reprint that we found black and white proofs of some of them. And uh, some of them we had to wash out the color, but some of them we actually had proofs of. We were reprinting the old Captain America, Submariner, Human Torch stories. And I wanted to bring them in in some way, but I had to find a way to do it. So I, I came up with this the, you know, the general idea and just, you know, I didn't give that much to, to Steve. Well, Steve, I don't know if he deliberately did it or it was just misunderstood or, you know, didn't care what, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, instead of doing the whole thing that I had, hoped he would do which is to take care of from 1945 to 1954 55 back in there he just did the 50s version oh wow. and everything and yeah. uh, so that left and, and that's the reason that that other book the what if was done by me later because when steve was done had done a very fine interesting job with his issues and they sold very well and they aroused a lot of interest there was still that there was still that whole late 40s period and uh, so forth uh, so i ended up uh deciding that i would do a story in what if which really wasn't a what if story and i said so at the time this is actually a story i count that counts as happening It right. was kind of cheating a little bit to say oh this story actually happened as opposed to all the other comic book stories but there it was uh it's it's interesting otherwise i left steve alone like i wouldn't have, I, I myself would not have had captain america be a, a crazy right winger you know and so forth and got kind of nuts i i wouldn't have done that i i liked that 50s captain america too much to have done that to him Mm -hmm. but if but when but i gave steve the assignment not me so if steve wanted to do that that's okay with me to me that character and the character in the 50s comics are still two different characters because i can't reconcile what steve did good as it was with these other characters that i love because i love ramita's art my favorite ramita art is not spider-man it's uh Captain America in the 1950s. If I had a page, one page of Rita artwork that I could have, it would be Captain America oh. from the 50s, not Spider Man. Much as I like his Spider Man, so you know, and so but that was okay. And you know, somebody else would have done something else to uh, do that. So other people would have said, let's just ignore. Stan would have just gone on ignoring the whole thing, <laughs> forever, and just said, and just said those stories didn't happen. But he didn't mind. You know, if I if I could handle it, and, and if Steve could handle it, that was fine with him.
2: You know, you, you mentioned the fact that you're not you weren't slavish, right? You're not slavish about about the continuity with the with the 40s mm-hmm. and 50s. And you know, one of the things that seems to bother a lot of people is that you know when, for example, the 1950s cap is is retconned as William Burnside and, and his Bucky is Jack Monroe. That somehow it, it it undermines what the intention was of the creative teams who who worked on those stories at the time, because they thought they were you know obviously drawing Steve Rogers, right? right. right? How do you how do you respond to that sort of um, you know folks that it's it's, it's criticism right a criticism yeah, of the approach I have but... one quote on that it. it's
0: a goddamn comic book <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know? that's what it is and so and it's you know and what Steve wrote what I, I I hate to I hate to bust anybody's groove but this is fiction you know right and, right. and so forth and. I agree, mean, you know, you want to take it seriously because it, but my feeling has always been really if the people who are writing and drawing the comics don't take the continuity seriously, I don't mean slavishly necessarily, but fairly seriously, then why the hell should I come back a month later and read another adventure about the same person and take that seriously if the people writing and drawing it act as if, you know, as soon as the story happens, it evaporates and it may have well never happened. But it, it there is a real problem, as I, as as I just said. Not knowing your what your experience with it was. Mm-hmm. I had just said that uh, you know, I could never I can never reconcile in my mind yeah. the Steve Rogers and Bucky that I knew in Ramita drawing and, and other whoever wrote, he thought Stan wrote some of them in 1954, 53 and 54. I can never reconcile that with the character that was going to throttle Nixon in the White House or whatever that Steve had in mind. But I accept that what Steve did was a a great story. It isn't Mm -hmm. my idea for the kind of story that I would have done for that thing, but I can't argue. I couldn't have done anything that would have been any more popular. I'd have been lucky if what I wrote would have been half as popular as what Steve did. And so okay, so we just did it, and then we just ignored it. And but I got to admit, you know, I sort of I can keep thinking, gee, who'd want to read those old stories now? And think this is some nut. He just hasn't got quite ready right. enough yet. In the fifties, so <laughs> the forties were a little easier because there wasn't that much, uh, you know, happening then. Yeah. But even there, you've got the fact that you know it's supposed to be the patriot who became the, uh, uh, you know, the Captain America of the late. You know, 40s. What I, right. I think I actually killed off one of my own characters in that what if. And I had made up that spirit of 76. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, is, that yeah. That, that, and, and then I, but then I figured, well, I, so I just killed him off and had the Patriot. Because I think the Patriot, I think the Patriot lasted in comics owned to about to about 46. So it sort of makes sense. He could have come in and taken Captain America's place. And I tied him in with Jack Kennedy and an Android and a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Just had a good time doing it with Frank Robbins. Steve had a good time doing it with his, you know. It all sold pretty well, so everybody's happy except the people that say, You know, that's not my Captain America of 1955. I understand their viewpoint pl- completely, but there's nothing to be done, it's just a comic book, you know. Yeah,
1: uh, it's, it's actually kind of funny, and it's like history repeats itself. You're saying people are saying, That's not my Captain America. We're, we're hearing that nowadays with the, the current stories of Captain mm-hmm. America, so uh, history repeats itself. Fans are, you know, they love what they love, uh, so mm-hmm. I. Getting back to that "What If" number four, uh, and and Bob mentioned we just we just covered that last uh, episode. We covered it panel by panel, and it's a it's an amazing story of this retcon that you had done. But one of our Patreon listeners, uh, Grant Ball, he submitted this question for you, and he said in that "What If" number four, we see William Naslin take over as Captain America, only to die shortly thereafter, and then replaced by Jeff Mace. He wants to know what was the purpose in having two different people take over his cap during this time, rather than just one of them. Well,
0: I I felt I should. I'd like to get some tragedy in the story. If if all that happens is okay, Captain America. Everybody already knows Captain America has disappeared and presumed dead since forty five. So that's no great story point. But if I bring in another Captain America and then suddenly surprise people by killing him off, you know, you want to shock people, poke them in the eye a little bit, and do something they weren't expecting. Uh, I could have just brought in the Patriot right away and had him continue to be it, you know, or something else. Uh, but uh, I, I just thought it would be just good to surprise people a little bit. And uh, so, it so I, obviously, obviously it worked. And, you know, if somebody else could have done it differently. They could have done it better. They could have done it worse. But that's it. And that's sort of my, that's that's as much more of Marvel continuity now as, say, the story that Steve did. They, they And they don't and they don't contradict each other. Because even though I had a different in, thing in mind for the '50s cap than what Steve did, uh, the fact remains: once he did that, to me, that was canon, and there's no reason not to have it be canon. And I just tried to work with it and do another story around it. Isn't is is uh, is the character that he is the character that went crazy? Is that uh, is that the patriot or is it uh, William, William Burnside? Burnside.
1: Yeah, yeah, different William. Yeah, yeah. yeah. William. So Burnside. he's not
0: he's not even the patriot or. Uh, spirit of 76 right no so you had three captain americas in that period in a way i i wanted to ask you roy because
2: you know you brought you brought the patriot jeff mace back in Mm -hmm. in marvel premiere 29 which had the the liberty legion great great three book series that crossed over with the invaders and then you you introduced william naslin in invaders 14 and and at least one of those books came out. uh yeah yeah he he was one of the crusaders
0: uh, oh oh william as that's the spirit of 76. Yeah, the spirit of 76 right. Right. i forgot right. his civilian yeah, name. yeah so right. you know i think he, but he's not the one that became uh he's not the one that became the captain american steve book.
2: no no different yeah that's a, that Burnside. was a third guy yeah, yeah right. third guy that's the so, third
0: guy so you know, i don't know uh, where he dug him up <laughs> <That's> Steve <laughs> <laughs> just made that up of. Right. yeah
2: and i don't think and he was he- identified by name till much much later
0: oh i see but
2: but in any case um so one of those books came out a good six months before What If number four. And of course, the Liberty Legion story, think I can, it came out a year, over a year before. So I was curious, how long were you playing with this idea? I mean, had you planned to already use those two characters in your in your what if retcon? Or was it just, you know, a happenstance?
0: I don't know. I, I don't I really don't. I knew that I wanted to deal with the stuff that Steve had done without undoing what he did. Mm-hmm. uh and everything even if i would have done you know even if i would have preferred he'd done it you know differently from a personal viewpoint from a professional or a commercial viewpoint i can't argue with him at all because he did it great at so, but um i i don't think I, I i think it was on my mind that i wanted to do something about that you know mm-hmm. i think it had been on my first of all i think it had been on my mind ever since i saw captain america number four in a way when i wasn't even a professional simply because i i saw it and you know i said it 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 upset my sensibility of continuity, and uh, and I so I wanted to take care of that. I like continuity, Stan liked continuity. He wouldn't have bothered with this bit of continuity, but that was my special. You know, he had the bits of continuity he liked to take care of, and I had the ones I wanted to take care of. And as long as they didn't get in the way of each other, and they sold some comics, that was you know basically fine with him. I so I think I was always kind of looking for a chance, you know, mm. I, don't, I don't mean I was actively seeking it exactly, but I was always ready for a chance to do it because after all, if I weren't, would I later have asked Steve to do what he did, you know, to, to take right. over that thing yeah. and do something. So uh, basically I, I, it was just an idea that was in my head and uh, whatever the chance came up, you know, it, it wasn't that I was looking for a chance. It's just, that it's there on the back burner of my mm. mind. And when the chance comes up, all of a sudden it, when I, when I founded the what if book, I didn't think in terms of doing that story, but as soon as I did one or two, it suddenly occurred to me I was going to violate the whole premise of what if <laughs> to get in the story I wanted to do yeah. before it got too far in. And everything I made sure I said that it was canonical because, you know, I, I wanted to kind of make it as, as difficult as possible for other people to undo it later on. Oh. I mean, anybody can do anything at Marvel if they really want to, but yeah. I wanted to make it tricky by saying this is real. This is not a what if story. It just happens to be appearing in the what if book.
2: Mm. So I've been excited to talk to you about the Invaders series. So when you launched the Invaders series with giant-sized Invaders number one in mid-1975, World War II was already by that point more than 30 years behind the readership and, and receding further and further with each year. Mm -hmm. Of course, several of the Tales of Suspense stories featuring Cap involved World War II stories with Bucky, but those ended with Tales of Suspense 71, as Cap's wartime adventures gave way to his contemporary man-out-of-time stories. So what was the invaders' pitch, and why did you think that World War II stories with a resurrected all-winner squad would resonate with a younger generation of readers, especially as the nation was just getting out of Vietnam
0: at that time? I didn't know. I Basically... This is the beginning of the the period. Remember, I had just left being editor-in-chief, you know, right? When I made up this idea for Stan, it was within a few days that I took the idea of the invaders in Stan after I had stepped down as, as editor-in-chief. And the basic thing was when I left being editor-in-chief, something happened inside me and I'd never again cared that much about the idea of commercial comic books. I mean, you know, you got to sell enough comics to keep things going and this and that. But from then on, all I ever really cared about was doing what I wanted to do, try to do it in a way that people would buy enough comics that the editors and publishers would leave me alone. That's all I really wanted. Hmm. I wanted to, so that Stan would be happy and the publisher would be be happy uh, you know, if it was Stan or somebody else. And I didn't really, I, I mean, I wanted to sell comic books. We weren't on a royalty system, so it didn't bother me that much if I sold as many comic books as, uh, as maybe I had when I was doing Avengers or something like that. They just had to sell enough comic books to get by. So therefore, commerciality was not at the top most of my mind when I came up with the idea of the invaders, but it wasn't at the bottom either, because I figured, well, here's a book. I I explained this to Stan. This was my pitch was that, you know, if you got a book with Captain America as one of the stars. And you've got the other human torch who had been introduced once before and he's he still looks like the other human torch so that'll bring in people who like the fantastic four even if they discover it's a different one and the submariner was had you know had a series you got these three guys you know but you just have them in a different time period but the reason for it was that i wanted to stay the hell away from marvel continuity and marvel the marvel mainstream i had I had gotten so used to writing uh, the stuff I wanted to write, like uh, the Conan books that were totally outside Marvel's mainstream continuity. I mean, they were so far back and I wouldn't let anybody else use Conan. So therefore I wanted to find other stuff that kept everybody away from me. I just wanted my own little world. I would pay attention to what was going on at Marvel. They could pay attention to one of me, but I didn't want something where I had to call and say, what's Captain America doing this month? Or what's this guy doing this month? or What's Spider-Man doing? I wanted something where, this happened 20, 30, 40 years before. So, none of your business what's happening in there. As long as it's consistent and doesn't undermine what's happening in Marvel today, you know, I should be left alone. So, I went to Stan and, and told him this. And since it had those three characters in it, and since he had done a few stories like that, though, I don't think he would have really ever come up with the idea of a regular. Remember, he had come up with the idea of Sergeant Fury which, and when it was already 20 years in the past. That's true, And he had done those Captain America stories with Jack. But that was mainly because he didn't want to interfere with the continuity and so forth of what was going on in the aven- in the Avengers. So he was looking for something that, you know, was kind of out, out of the way for a while. And But in my case, I just told him, I said, uh, you know, we could do this book set in the past. And I wanted it so that I could have my own little world, you know, and everything. And nobody was going to, you know, bother me about it. And I, and, but the thing I knew is that Stan is not going to let me call call this the All Winners Squad. <laughs> that was just a name that came up. Never, you know, they never even had a real logo, and uh, it was it was just a name that came up because of the name of the book was All Winners, and it wasn't a very good name for a group. You know, what's what's the All Winners Squad? So I gave it to Truman to suggest that in what If number four, of course, and uh, so I said I have to come up with a new name. Well, you may you may recall that uh, back in one of the last couple of issues of Tales of Aston- to Astonish before Hulk and Submariner went off into a series of their own, they had a big full issue battle that Stan and Marie Severin did. Was it number uh, 100, 101, something like that? A whole full battle, Submariner versus the Hulk. Hmm. And uh, Stan, when that sold like crazy, Stan had it for about three days. He had this idea he wanted to do a book that had the Hulk and Submariner together every issue, and it was going to be called the invaders hmm. and uh he quickly gave up on that idea it's it i believe he just thought hey you know if you have them fight every issue it's not going to be so special you know so uh you know they can't just they can't just fight every issue so he gave up on that he never went any further but in the meantime he'd had this idea for a comic called the invaders and this is i think before the tv show and then the tv cable show came along and it vanished so that wasn't a problem anymore so without making stand i went into stan and i told him this idea. And he said, well, that's good. What do, you, what do you want to call it? I said, well, I got a great name. He says, I said, the invaders. And so he <laughs> looked at me. and he said, I like that name. Said, you know, uh. I didn't bother telling him it was his, you know, that he had come up with it several years earlier. Uh, he, he was still liked it. I just felt, out oh, if he thinks I made up this name instead of him, that's okay with me. So I had a good name because, you know, he likes strong names like the Avengers and the invaders. In fact, I never liked the defenders much. I felt it was too passive, but Avengers, invaders, those are better names to me. And so I had this book and then I was allowed to just go off and, you know, do what I want to do. And it sold for a little while and then it kind of, you know, kind of withered on the vine. And I had other interests, so I didn't write all of them and probably didn't oversee them as carefully as I could. Otherwise, I like to think it would have lasted a lot longer than 40 or so issues because it definitely deserved to. One of the
2: favorite books in my collection is Invaders Annual Number 1 from August 1977. You have good taste. It's got three great (laughs) tales that give the other side of the story that we read in Avengers 71, this one Mm -hmm. from the invader's perspective. But the real treat is that cover by none other than the legendary Alex Schomburg, who also pencils the Human Torch story in this issue. I think this might have been his last work for Marvel. This issue also featured a Submariner story penciled by Lee Elias, famous for his work on the 1940s Black Black Cap comic. And, and, who did
0: Submar- and who did Submariner? And for who a did Submariner thing. for a while? Yeah, right.
2: Yep. And a Cap story penciled by Don Rico, who worked on several Cap books in the 40s and 50s. Two other legendary Golden Age artists. So I have to ask, what's the backstory here? How were you able to recruit such amazing Golden Age talents to participate in that issue?
1: Well,
0: you know, call it a skill. I don't know. But <laughs> basically, you just have the idea. The thing was, I wanted to do something a little different. I I could have had Frank. Uh, uh, Robbins draw the whole book and everything, and uh, but it, the thing is, you you know, uh, I I I love the Justice Society, the old series at DC from the forties. That's my favorite comic book of all time, and you know they used to have they'd have the characters at the beginning at the together at the beginning and end, and in the middle they would have separate chapters, at least in the prime of the book, penciled usually by the guy who penciled the regular book. Joe Kubert would draw Hawkman and. You know, some uh, Paul Reinman would draw a Green Lantern that he was drawing in a book, and the Flash artist, sometimes Elias, would draw the Flash, things like that. And I wanted to do a book like that because, you know, I I, I said I want to do an All Star Comics type book at uh, uh, at at Marvel, and you know, I'd already I was I'd already done it in a way with you know aspects of uh, What If and so forth. So I decided I'm going to try to get somebody who worked on the '40s characters to do the book. And the, one of the first things I did go to was Alex Schomburg because he had done all those great covers with all the death rays labeled and everything like that. And he did a fine cover. Uh, the code made us take a spot of blood out of it the, the, when Nazi was bleeding. But otherwise, it's exactly as he drew it. And that was nice. But he was only going to do the covers because I don't know if he ever did any interior art for Marvel. He did some for other companies like the Standard Group. But I don't know if he ever drew much of anything for Marvel or Timely in those days, just covers. But anyway, so I had... Um, Carl Burgers was gonna do the Human Torch. And uh, I never met Carl Burgess in my life, but I did talk to him on the phone once or twice, and he said he'd do it. And then because he really, I don't know, he was just so unhappy uh, with Stan and, and Goodman because they had brought back the Human Torch, the original Human Torch in that FF Annual, Probably to secure the rights and make sure they had that human torch too, that he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And It was nothing personal with me; we didn't know each other. But he just said, "I can't bring myself to do it." You know, so, so he begged off over the phone. I was kind of crushed. And uh, in the meantime, I had gone to Don Rico. I, in some ways, I would have, if I could have, I might have liked to go to Ramita because he didn't draw it in the '40s, but he drew it in the '50s. I couldn't get Kirby. You know, at the time. Uh, and so forth, and uh, who else? Who around there was there? So, but I, but I knew Don Rico slightly, you know, because I was living in L.A. Uh, by that time, and I had met Don Rico, and we were, you know, mild friends, and I knew he drew. He, it wasn't something he did a lot of, and I said he could, he could draw a store if he wanted to, and he, he seemed interested, and. Lee Elias, again, I never met the man. I, I he and I remember he had he hated the submariner, by the way. He said awful things about him in an interview I read sometimes. said it was an awful fish character. He said, just hated. Huh. Him. And he had been hired to try to modernize the character. He did a few issues, and then somehow he felt they gave it to other people so they wouldn't have to pay his rate or something. He said so he had a very bad experience at Timely back in the late 40s when he did that evidently, but he was willing to come in at least pencil it, you know and uh, so okay so uh, you know so i was happy i had two of the artists but what am i going to do about the human torch i could have maybe got dick Ayers, who again had drawn it in the 50s but you know that isn't the 40s and i didn't know anybody else much around who had done the human torch in the 40s and then it occurred to me schomburg did all those covers with the human torch on them so i asked him how would you like to draw what about drawing a five or six page chapter of the human torch you know just for the heck of it you know and so forth i had a little plot for it and you know he had never worked much on comics for Marvel, let alone work what they called Marvel style for the plot. But he did it. He did it beautifully. And so I was just on heaven. I had Carl Burgess, Lee Elias, and uh, Don Rico drawing those three characters in the in what became the uh, you know an origin story of sorts for uh, I don't know was that for the All Winners Squad at the end was it was that the was that the issue or was it What If in which Truman named them the All Winners Squad
1: i can't remember that was
0: probably that was probably the one i I think but anyway it was a but i was and of course in my mind all this stuff was tied together the nice thing about marvel was it was a small enough big as it was by that stage it was still there was still a small enough feeling about it you know a half a dozen or a dozen writers were writing everything especially the major books there's myself jerry conway you know len ween a couple other people stan wasn't writing much anymore you You were putting out like five
1: to seven books a month i mean you were like a machine
0: yeah, well, what do you mean like a machine? I was a machine. I never slept. <laughs> but I was a machine. But now I'm a machine, too. I'm just writing down, you know. But, uh, yeah, because, yeah, I was was at, at, earlier when I was editor chief. Of course, I had to work 40 hours or so a week at the office and then do all my writing, you know, at home. So I was working 50, 60, 70 hours a week and of the thing. And uh, probably the reason I'm on my second wife, I'm lucky I'm not on my 10th, probably. You know? <laughs> but anyway... Uh, you know, it was just, it was a, it was a backbreaking job. Now, of course I was out in LA and, and at least, you know, I was just doing the writing, but also I had the temptation of a whole different lifestyle. So I was, in some ways I was less interested in writing comics in the latter seventies than I was, you know, before uh, it, it's amazing to me. Anything I turned out was any good at all if by anybody's standard, because I was more interested in dating, you know, I'd gone through a divorce, so I was interested in dating. I met Dan in 77, uh, and that took care of that. And, uh, I had, uh, you know, and I was trying to find other aspects of a new life. I was even, you know, looking into doing some TV writing. I had an agent and we, I'd go to meetings for that and eventually got into some movie writing and so forth. So, you know, comic books, I loved them, but I was probably let by once I left being the editor in chief, I was less interested in writing comics probably than I had been before. But I did have, so I would try to come up with things that would enthuse me. And one thing that would enthuse me was Conan. So I kept that. And another thing that enthused me a lot was the Invaders. And in fact, I liked it so much. Then I came up with the Liberty Legion, and we and that was actually the, the you know several pages were drawn of a first issue of the Liberty Legion by Don Heck. But the Invader sales weren't quite strong enough that Stan would, uh, you know, would try that. So those pages were eventually worked it, uh, into a later issues of uh, of the Invaders. The Liberty Legion was an idea when I was like ten or eleven years old. I had made up a group called the Liberty Legion and drawn my own. 50 page all-star comics type of comic about it and then i had made up another liberty legion in about 1955 that was like a cross-company thing i drew one story it had superman batman wonder woman the submariner who was the only one of the timely characters still left in 55 the other two died and there was sluggo of the slugger of the little wise guys and and crime buster (laughs) and uh, blackhawk and plastic man i put them all together in one thing i call actually marvel comics during the liberty legion and i did this one story colored it and everything of that so wow. th- this was actually my third liberty legion you know, uh, by the time it, the one that came out at marvel was my third liberty legion
1: i think we would all love to see what you did back when you were a kid at some point um i, I do have a quick qu- uh, avengers question for you because uh you know you you spent so many so much time on the avengers uh, it in in, in Avengers Fifty Six, which was Death Be Not Proud. You, you wrote a story of Cap and the Avengers using Doctor Doom's time machine to go back and and watch that fateful day when Cap and Bucky fell off the, the drone plane by Baron Zemo, and and yeah. uh, Cap just had to be sure his partner was actually dead. Um, and I don't believe we've seen this story fleshed out before. Uh, what what inspired you to revisit this era uh, and and provide the backstory of Bucky's death?
0: Got to do something. <laughs> uh I, w- I was interested in that i thought well you know why not see what happened i mean if there it had been such a you know a two or three panel sequence in avengers number four so i figured let's go back and see more detail i really think i blew it in a way because you know i because i made one of the main elements of it a bunch of these giant robots or androids that zemo has made up and if you've got all those somehow you know i, I don't know it's kind of warps the story i I feel i probably should have left them out other than that i was fairly proud of the story and i swiped swiped a quote from milton you know for the title and Mm -hmm. uh i was i was not the first person to have used that title of course to swipe it from milton and i it was real that was a that was just a period when i was having a lot of you know ideas that were a lot of fun because the very next issue was what the first vision yes you know Mm -hmm. i think and you know so i mean it, it was just you know, sometimes you kind of get on a roll and, you know, for several months, all of a sudden you're writing stories. And each one seems like not necessarily better than the others or, or whatever, but, you know, suddenly they seem all right. And then you go through another period where you have several issues and none of them seem to stand out particularly. You know, we all have that, the ups and downs. I was, you know, maybe just getting started on a bit of a roll. And John DeSemma provided such beautiful artwork, you know, for these stories uh, that, uh, I mean, I was always constantly inspired by John's artwork because he could just draw so beautifully. Indeed.
2: You know, I I really, I was disappointed when the volume one of the Invaders invaders, uh, ended with issue 41. And I was excited to see the four issue miniseries that popped up in in the 1990s when Mike Rockwitz was the the editor. Mm -hmm. And of course, we saw the giant size Invaders number two in 2005 and your more recent collaboration with Jerry Ordway on the Bahamas Triangle. Uh, captain american <laughs> yeah. invader story which was absolutely magnificent oh, thank and you. so um, might we see any more
0: invaders stories in the future that you're involved with if i had my druthers i would be writing a monthly invaders comic i mean grant you even more so i'd be writing a monthly all-star squadron i, I won't deny that and so forth and i wouldn't mind writing a monthly conan but of the marvel superheroes if there was one thing i could do i would you know, not counting, not talking about royalties or anything like that. I would want to do an invaders book uh, and just, you know, pick up where the story left off, because mostly I've tried to keep, I tried to keep them in order. The stories uh, in the 90s edition of Invaders took place not too long after where the book Mm -hmm. kind of dropped off, and I think the, uh, I even think the Bahamas Triangle story uh, picked up about that point and so forth. But at at this case, I, you know, I wanted to do a story where they hadn't met yet, so I moved that back a little bit. Mm -hmm. But all, all they would have to do is uh, give me an assignment. But, you know, they obviously have uh, so many other many brilliant things going. They haven't got, you know, room for one of the people, you know, who uh, created five or six of their major series. <laughs> well, we'll see if I'll, I'll see who I can call. Thank you. To Tom. <laughs> yeah, Tony, there's this guy being wasted in the wilds of South Carolina who just loved to write a monthly invader's book. Got and, it. Yeah. Uh,
1: so so one last for me is is uh, speaking of what if, right? You, you created the the idea of what if and you created the what if series and and wrote several of the stories and and you know some some amazing amazing stories we've got a what if for you uh what if roy thomas had never gotten into comics what would he have become
0: A uh, frustrated college professor probably <laughs> because what because when i took the job at dc i had a i had just a few weeks before gotten a fellowship with, through the Scottish Rite Lodge, uh, through a friend of mine, to uh, study foreign relations as graduate work at the at the at Washington George Washington University in Washington D.C. Now I'd I had to, I don't know, I'd had to work my way through because I didn't have you know any money to support myself. Well, so that so I, I either I would have either become a college professor or uh, a diplomat or, as Woody Allen used to say, in the case of war, I'm a hostage. You know, that's, you know something like that. And uh, Stan, Stan said once in a thing, he says, ah, the way Roy likes to shoot his mouth off, he'd have probably started World War Three if he got into that." And I, but uh, so, but that's basically it. About a year before, although I had no training for this either, I had wanted and I uh, to be an Egyptologist. And I got, and I was accepted through a professor at uh, at, Jar- at Washington University in St. Louis, another Washington, uh, to study at the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute, which is one of the top schools in the world for, uh, uh, you know, Egyptologists. And I was, I had no background or particular knowledge, but I didn't want to be a high school teacher, and I thought Egyptology might be fun. But I didn't have any money to. If I had money, I'd have been an Egyptologist, so probably Egyptology's loss is comic books' is loss. You know? <laughs> you know, so I but it would have been something academic. I'd have probably, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a natural academic, but I, I I could have been an academic. I could have been a contender. You know? <laughs> so what what is keeping you busy nowadays? Do you have any
1: upcoming projects you can share with the listeners?
0: Well, of course, I still publish my comics history magazine, uh, Alter Ego. Every couple yeah, of months, a good... I've, got, I've got one issue coming up on neil adams in a few weeks it'll be kind of interesting and uh his ghost will probably come down and strike me <laughs> you know, so, but i'd love to work it with neil and uh you know um i'm working on my autobiography uh you know finally started it a, a few weeks ago i don't know if it'll you know god knows what it'll be but in the meantime i i do books for a few publishers do either introduction or putting them together and two things i'm particularly happy with now is one of them is for the the folio society which is in, in england they work with shakespeare and other mm-hmm. things they I've now done about nine volumes that have come out and there's at least one or so more in the works, uh, which are like picking up the selection of the best of either the best of the golden age or the one volume, you probably have seen it, the best of Captain America. Yeah, you picked out, out a ten couple of years ago. That. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. came out and, uh, for the 80th the anniversary. Latest, yeah,
0: then I've done, there's a bit of Thor and uh, Spider-Man. The latest one just is coming out or has come out is uh, Doctor Strange just now coming out. Uh, and so I've done that. I select the stories and write an introduction. Uh, another uh I, well they don't they don't have visuals so oh, so oh, but, so nice. yeah <laughs> but anyway he, somebody he's handing me a book but i said well they can't see it i can i could pound on the cover <laughs> you
1: yeah we can show them
0: <laughs> yeah show them this is this is the uh this is the other oh, the the other oh wow it's pretty thick this is a book from abrams books uh charlie cokeman as the editor uh they abrams has been doing a lot of stuff with Marvel, you know lately and i had a hand in a couple of them there was a black light poster thing and a couple of mm-hmm. other things. This is a book that's going to come out in the next couple of weeks or so. I think it's called uh, uh Marvel Value Stamps: A Visual History. You know, I mean, and if there was nice. one thing I hated Marvel Comics in 1973 yeah. and 74, it was Marvel Value right. Stamps because it would make people cut up their, you know, there's the comics. But that was Stan's idea, and he rammed it down our throats, and we had to do it. And this book should really be a lousy book because you know I hate the Stan. It's just a bunch of you know pictures on stamps but they took it and they uh and they made a several hundred page book out of it By they they show the um say the letters page in which the stamp appeared of the hundred uh-huh. books, the first hundred stamps others and then they had a second set later with uh, which you put a bunch together to, like a puzzle to make mm-hmm. a picture and on the opposite page they show the page of the comic book cover or whatever from which that picture was taken
1: oh, that's really know, cool
0: it, put on there yeah. sometimes and sometimes rearranged or a new head put on mm-hmm. or something I wrote a couple of notes on that too. And I wrote a, a rather lengthy 20 or 30 page introduction about how much I hated Marvel value stamps, <laughs> and all the way, it, but it, the way it came. And, you know, I think it, I, I was, I had, I had fun laughing the whole time I was doing this. So it, so I, even my wife thought it was uh, funny and she doesn't always like my sense of humor. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. And I think that, uh, I think people will enjoy that even if they, uh, you know, whether they know anything or care anything about Marvel value stamps, so between that and the folio society books and, the autobiography uh, i've written about i started only a couple of months ago and i only write it you know my spare time so i've written about only about twenty thousand words of it so far and i'm still in the eighth grade but <laughs> you know someday this book will come out it'll be some humongous book that nobody will buy but it'll be there anyway
1: well i you know i highly recommend uh to the listeners do do check out the folio of society uh because that that captain america slipcase that uh that you worked on because you did you did the the introduction and then you picked out 10 10 different captain america
0: stories that meant something to you I, that was one of the I questions we didn't to, get by to way, I should, my manager wants me to mention that he was one of the four or five advisors we i have several because <laughs> the thing is i know through the through the 60s 70s maybe a little later you know i've seen this stuff but although i collected some comics and i see them and i know who the major writers are and this and that you know, I don't really, you know, I haven't really read comics that steadily for some years. I love the medium. I just don't read them as much anymore. I tend to read more history and biography. So I needed some help. So I got uh, uh, John Sabido and three or four other people around the world, uh, including in England and uh, Australia to suggest their their pick that I would, you know, make the choice from among them and what I thought and what I heard of other places and what they thought. So it becomes kind of a joint effort. But I'm, I'm very pleased to put those you know books together and we go all the way through uh, what Captain America number one, yeah, uh, to a in there to a, a real long twenty-something page story that Stan wrote when he took over the uh, the book in the forties when Jack and Joe left, and then there and it ends up with. And then of course, it's got Avengers number four in it. It's got mm-hmm. a chapter of Steve Englehart's fifties Captain America, in it. it's got two or three other good stories by Roger Stern, and it's got that wonderful thing Stern and uh, John Byrne did together retelling the origin yes. of Cap so wonderfully, which I utilized again in that bahamas triangle story and and it ends up with this uh, award-winning story where gene colin did it. they yeah. did the they colored his pencils on a story with uh, world war ii vampires so we were back to world war ii by the end of uh of the thing
1: yeah it, it's an amazing thing and it's so well put together um the, the folio society it's just a a high quality high quality mm-hmm. stuff so yeah. looking forward to to the to the other characters that you're doing there, and and, and highly recommend our listeners check those yeah. out. Can you
0: can you believe that that the the suits of Marvel 20, 30 years ago they were always told me, "Well, you know, nobody is," he says. They they this they said nobody is ever going to pay good money for a hardbound you know comic book, a collection of old comic books. Can, can you? I mean, if you can see my shelf right now, I think those guys would like right. you know, faint dead away. You know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, any of our shelves for that matter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, well, Roy, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it's been a, a tremendous honor wrapping cap with you. A
0: real privilege. Wrap with cap or yap with cap or whatever they call it. <laughs> I always wanted to call it Star Spangled Banter, but uh, I never got around to
1: that. <laughs> oh, note to self. We, we, like Bob, we might need to use that in the future. <laughs> uh, no, I like that one. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you, sir. Th- thank, thank you. Well, all right. That was a lot of fun having the. Legendary Roy Thomas on the show, Bob. It was it everything you hoped it would be.
2: It was. I mean, I wish we'd had more time with him, Rick. Uh, I could have, I could have sat there for two or three hours talking to Roy, and uh, had a lot more questions. But I'm glad we had the opportunity to ask the ones that we did, and I'm glad he was so um, loquacious. Right. I mean, he didn't, uh, he didn't hold back, and uh, and we didn't have to pull stuff from him. Uh, he was just really conversational. So that
1: was really amazing. Yeah, he's a true gentleman uh, as well as a, a true professional, um, and and certainly do uh, look forward to seeing some of those portfolios uh, that he works hard on, um, you know, with the Folio Society. So th- those sound really cool, um, and he also has there's a, a Roy Thomas um, Facebook group. Um, I I would say you know if, if people are fans of his, his, his stuff and and want to go down a trip down memory lane, like they do with our, our Facebook group, the Captain America comic book fans. Um, there is a, a Roy Thomas uh, Facebook group as well that uh, his manager, John Semino runs. So check that out. That's a, uh, that's a lot of fun.
2: I'll have to check that. I, I wasn't aware of that myself. So thank you for that.
1: Absolutely. All right. So next episode, Bob, we're going back to dimension Z. Uh, we kick this off with uh, episode 122, and it's going to be a 10-part series, and we're going to we're going to get into part two, which is Castaway and Dimension Z, part two. Uh, that's from Captain America Volume Seven by Rick Remender and John Rametta Jr. and Klaus Jansen. and it's a it's a really cool story uh, that really does change Steve Rogers' life uh, as well as Sharon Carter for 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 good so um it's a it's a cool story so we'll be coming back to that next episode looking forward to that it's a great read absolutely all right bob as always it's been fun wrapping cap with you okay let's do it again next week rick or should i say star spangled banter i love that (laughs) we're
2: gonna have to use that yeah that's a
1: good one all right. He's Bob Lucius. I'm Rick forbanus And you have been listening to another episode of the Captain America comic book fans podcast.